Chapter Nine of Mr. Standfast. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine, I take the wings of a dove. Drive me somewhere to breakfast, Archie. I said, for I'm perishing hungry. He and I got into the tonneau, and the driver swung us out of the station road, up a long incline of hill. Sir Archie had been one of my subalterns in the old Lennox Highlanders, and had left us before the Somme to join the flying corps. I heard that he had got his wings and had done well before Arras, and was now training pilots at home. He had been a light-hearted youth, who had endured a good deal of rough-tonguing from me for his sins of omission but it was the casual class of lad I was looking for now. I saw him steal amused glances at my appearance. "'Been seeing a bit of life, sir?' he inquired respectfully. "'I'm being hunted by the police,' I said. "'Dirty dogs! But don't worry, sir. We'll get you off all right. I've been in the same fix myself. You can lie snug in my little log hut, for that old image Gibbons won't blab. Or, tell you what, I've got an aunt who lives near here, and she's a bit of a sportsman. You can hide in her moated grange till the bobbies get tired." I think it was Archie's calm acceptance of my position as natural and becoming that restored my good temper. He was far too well-bred to ask what crime I had committed, and I didn't propose to enlighten him much. But as we swung up the moorland road, I let him know that I was serving the government but that it was necessary that I should appear to be unauthenticated, and that therefore I must dodge the police. He whistled his appreciation. "'Gad, that's a deep game. Sort of camouflage? Speaking from my experience, it is easy to overdo that kind of stunt. When I was at Misieux, the French started out to camouflage the caravans where they kept their pigeons, and they did it so damned well that the poor little birds couldn't hit em off, and spent the night out. We entered the white gates of a big aerodrome, skirted a forest of tents and huts, and drew up at a shanty on the far confines of the place. The hour was half-past four, and the world was still asleep. Archie nodded towards one of the hangars, from the mouth of which projected the propeller end of an aeroplane. "'I'm by way of flying that bus down to Farnton tomorrow,' he remarked. "'It's the new Shark Gladys. Got a mouth like a tree.' An idea flashed into my mind. "'You're going this morning,' I said. "'How did you know?' he exclaimed. "'I'm due to go to-day, but the grouse up in Caithness wanted shootin' so badly that I decided to wangle another day's leave. They can't expect a man to start for the south of England when he's just off a frowsy journey. "'All the same, you're going to be a stout fellow and start in two hours' time, and you're going to take me with you.' He stared blankly, then burst into a roar of laughter. "'You're the man to go tiger-shootin' with. But what price my commandant? He's not a bad chap, but a trifle shaggy about the fetlocks. He won't appreciate the joke.' "'He needn't know. He mustn't know. This is an affair between you and me till it's finished. I promise you I'll make it all square with the Flying Corps. Get me down to Farnton before evening, and you'll have done a good piece of work for your country.' Right-o, let's have a tub and a bit of breakfast, and then I'm your man. I'll tell them to get the bus ready." In Archie's bedroom I washed and shaved, and borrowed a green tweed cap and a brand-new aquascutum. The latter covered the deficiencies of my raiment, and when I commandeered a pair of gloves I felt almost respectable. Gibbons, who seemed to be a jack-of-all-trades, cooked us some bacon and an omelette, and as he ate Archie yarned. 
In the battalion his conversation had been mostly of race meetings and the forsaken delights of town, but now he had forgotten all that, and like every good airman I have ever known, wallowed enthusiastically in shop. I have a deep respect for the Flying Corps, but it is apt to change its jargon every month, and its conversation is hard for the layman to follow. He was desperately keen about the war, which he saw wholly from the viewpoint of the air. Arras to him was over before the infantry crossed the top, and the tough bit of the Somme was October, not September. He calculated that the big air-fighting had not come along yet, and all he hoped for was to be allowed out to France to have his share in it. Like all good airmen, he was very modest about himself. I've done a bit of steeplechasing and hunting, and I've good hands for a horse, so I can handle a bus fairly well. It's all a matter of hands, you know. There ain't half the risk of the infantry down below you, and a million times the fun. Jolly glad I changed, sir. We talked of Peter, and he put him about top. Voss, he thought, was the only Bosch that could compare with him, for he hadn't made up his mind about Lynch. The Frenchman Guinemet he ranked high, but in a different way. I remember he had no respect for Richthofen and his celebrated circus. At six sharp we were ready to go. A couple of mechanics had got out the machine, and Archie put on his coat and gloves and climbed into the pilot's seat, while I squeezed in behind in the observer's place. The aerodrome was waking up, but I saw no officers about. We were scarcely seated when Gibbons called our attention to a motor-car on the road and presently we heard a shout, and saw men waving in our direction. "'Better get off, my lad,' I said. "'These look like my friends.' The engine started, and the mechanics stood clear. As we taxied over the turf, I looked back and saw several figures running in our direction. The next second we had left the bumpy earth for the smooth high-road of the air. I had flown several dozen times before, generally over the enemy lines, when I wanted to see for myself how the land lay. Then we had flown low, and had been nicely dusted by the Hun Archies, not to speak of an occasional machine-gun. But never till that hour had I realized the joy of a straight flight in a swift plane in perfect weather. Archie didn't lose time. Soon the hangars behind looked like a child's toys, and the world ran away from us till it seemed like a great golden bowl, spilling over with the quintessence of light. The air was cold and my hands numbed, but I never felt them. As we throbbed and tore southward, sometimes bumping in eddies, sometimes swimming evenly in a stream of motionless ether, my head and heart grew as light as a boy's. I forgot all about the vexations of my job, and saw only its joyful comedy. I didn't think that anything on earth could worry me again. Far to the left was a wedge of silver, and behind it a cluster of toy houses. That must be Edinburgh, where reposed my portmanteau, and where a most efficient police force was now inquiring for me. At the thought I laughed so loud that Archie must have heard me. He turned round, saw my grinning face, and grinned back. Then he signalled to me to strap myself in. I obeyed, and he proceeded to practice stunts—the loop, the spinning nose-dive, and others I didn't even know the names of. It was glorious fun, and he handled his machine as a good rider coaxes a nervous horse over a stiff hurdle. He had that extra something in his blood that makes the great pilot. Presently the chessboard of green and brown had changed to a deep purple with faint silvery lines, 
like veins in a rock. We were crossing the border hills, the place where I had legged it for weary days when I was mixed up in the black stone business. What a marvellous element was this air, which took one far above the fatigues of humanity! Archie had done well to change. Peter had been the wise man. I felt a tremendous pity for my old friend hobbling about a German prison-yard when he had once flown a hawk. I reflected that I had wasted my life hitherto, and then I remembered that all this glory had only one use in war, and that was to help the muddy British infantryman to down his Hun opponent. He was the fellow, after all, that decided battles, and the thought comforted me. A great exhilaration is often the precursor of disaster, and mine was to have a sudden downfall. It was getting on for noon, and we were well into England. I guessed from the rivers we had passed that we were somewhere in the north of Yorkshire, when the machine began to make odd sounds, and we bumped in perfectly calm patches of air. We dived and then climbed, but the confounded thing kept sputtering. Archie passed back a slip of paper on which he had scribbled, Engine conked. Miss Land at Micklegill. Very sorry. So we dropped to a lower elevation where we could see clearly the houses and roads, and the long, swelling ridges of a moorland country. I could never have found my way about, but Archie's practised eye knew every landmark. We were trundling along very slowly now, and even I was soon able to pick up the hangars of a big aerodrome. We made Micklegill, but only by the skin of our teeth. We were so low that the smoky chimneys of the city of Bradfield, seven miles to the east, were half hidden by a ridge of down. Archie achieved a clever descent in the lee of a belt of firs, and got out full of imprecations against the Gladys engine. "'I'll go up to the camp and report,' he said, and send mechanics down to tinker this darn gramophone. You'd better go for a walk, sir. I don't want to answer questions about you till we're ready to start.' I reckon it'll be about an hour's job." The cheerfulness I had acquired in the upper air still filled me. I sat down in a ditch, as merry as a sand-boy, and lit a pipe. I was possessed by a boyish spirit of casual adventure, and waited on the next turn of fortune's wheel with only a pleasant amusement. That turn was not long in coming. Archie appeared very breathless. "'Look here, sir, there's the deuce of a row up there. They've been wiring about you all over the country, and they know you're with me. They've got the police, and they'll have you in five minutes if you don't leg it. I lied like Billy-O, and said I had never heard of you, but they're coming to see for themselves. For God's sake, get off. You'd better keep in cover down that hollow, and round the back of these trees. I'll stay here and try to brazen it out. I'll get strafed to blazes anyhow. I hope you'll get me out of the scrape, sir." "'Don't you worry, my lad,' I said. "'I'll make it all square when I get back to town. I'll make for Bradfield, for this place is a bit conspicuous. Good-bye, Archie. You're a good chap, and I'll see you don't suffer.' I started off down the hollow of the moor, trying to make speed atone for lack of strategy, for it was hard to know how much my pursuers commanded from that higher ground. They must have seen me, for I heard whistles blown and men's cries. I struck a road, crossed it, and passed a ridge from which I had a view of Bradfield six miles off. And as I ran I began to reflect that this kind of chase could not last long. They were bound to round me up in the next half-hour, unless I could puzzle them. But in that bare, green place there was no cover, and it looked as if my chances were pretty much those of a hare coursed by a good greyhound on a naked moor. 
Suddenly, from just in front of me, came a familiar sound. It was the roar of guns, the slam of field batteries, and the boom of small howitzers. I wondered if I had gone off my head. As I plodded on, the rattle of machine-guns was added, and over the ridge before me I saw the dust and fumes of bursting shells. I concluded that I was not mad, and that therefore the Germans must have landed. I crawled up the last slope, quite forgetting the pursuit behind me. And then I'm blessed if I did not look down on a veritable battle. There were two sets of trenches, with barbed wire and all the fixings, one set filled with troops and the other empty. On these latter shells were bursting, but there was no sign of life in them. In the other lines there seemed the better part of two brigades, and the first trench was stiff with bayonets. My first thought was that home forces had gone dotty, for this kind of show could have no sort of training value. And then I saw other things, cameras and cameramen on platforms on the flanks, and men with megaphones behind them on wooden scaffoldings. One of the megaphones was going full blast all the time. I saw the meaning of the performance at last. Some movie merchant had got a graft with the government, and troops had been turned out to make a war film. It occurred to me that if I were mixed up in that push, I might get the cover I was looking for. I scurried down the hill to the nearest cameraman. As I ran, the first wave of troops went over the top. They did it uncommon well, for they entered into the spirit of the thing, and went over with grim faces in that slow, purposeful lope that I had seen in my own fellows at Arras. Smoke grenades burst among them, and now and then some resourceful mountebank would roll over. Altogether it was about the best show I have ever seen. The cameras clicked, the guns banged, a background of Boy Scouts applauded, and the dust rose in billows to the sky. But all the same, something was wrong. I could imagine that this kind of business took a good deal of planning from the point of view of the movie merchant, for his purpose was not the same as that of the officer in command. You know how a photographer finicks about, and is dissatisfied with a pose that seems all right to his sitter. I should have thought the spectacle enough to get any cinema audience off their feet, but the man on the scaffolding near me judged differently. He made his megaphone boom like the swan song of a dying buffalo. He wanted to change something, and didn't know how to do it. He hopped on one leg, he took the megaphone from his mouth to curse, he waved it like a banner and yelled at some opposite number on the other flank, and then his patience forsook him, and he skipped down the ladder, dropping his megaphone, past the cameramen, onto the battlefield. That was his undoing. He got in the way of the second wave, and was swallowed up like a leaf in a torrent. For a moment I saw a red face and a loud-checked suit, and the rest was silence. He was carried on over the hill, or rolled into an enemy trench, but anyhow he was lost to my ken. I bagged his megaphone and hopped up the steps to the platform. At last I saw a chance of first-class cover, for with Archie's coat and cap I made a very good appearance as a movie merchant. Two waves had gone over the top, and the cinema men, working like beavers, had filmed a lot, but there was still a fair amount of troops to play with, and I determined to tangle up that outfit so that the fellows who were after me would have better things to think about. My advantage was that I knew how to command men. I could see that my opposite number with the megaphone was helpless, for the mistake which had swept my man into a shell-hole had reduced him to impotence. The troops seemed to be mainly in charge of NCOs. I could imagine that the officers would try to shirk this business, and an NCO is the most literal creature on earth. 
So, with my megaphone, I proceeded to change the battle order. I brought up the third wave to the front trenches. In about three minutes, the men had recognized the professional touch and were moving smartly to my orders. They thought it was part of the show, and the obedient cameras clicked at everything that came into their orbit. My aim was to deploy the troops on too narrow a front, so that they were bound to fan outward, and I had to be quick about it, for I didn't know when the hapless movie merchant might be retrieved from the battlefield and dispute my authority. It takes a long time to straighten a thing out, but it does not take long to tangle it, especially when the thing is so delicate a machine as disciplined troops. In about eight minutes I had produced chaos. The flanks spread out, in spite of all the shepherding of the NCOs, and the fringe engulfed the photographers. The cameras on their little platforms went down like ninepins. It was solemn to see the startled face of a photographer, taken unawares, supplicating the purposeful infantry, before he was swept off his feet into speechlessness. It was no place for me to linger in, so I chucked away the megaphone and got mixed up with the tail of the third wave. I was swept on and came to anchor in the enemy trenches, where I found, as I expected, my profane and breathless predecessor, the movie merchant. I had nothing to say to him, so I stuck to the trench till it ended against the slope of the hill. On that flank, delirious with excitement, stood a knot of Boy Scouts. My business was to get to Bradfield as quickly as my legs would take me, and as inconspicuously as the gods would permit. Unhappily, I was far too great an object of interest to that nursery of heroes. Every Boy Scout is an amateur detective and hungry for knowledge. I was followed by several, who plied me with questions, and were told that I was off to Bradfield to hurry up part of the cinema outfit. It sounded lame enough, for that cinema outfit was already past praying for. We reached the road, and against a stone wall stood several bicycles. I selected one and prepared to mount. "'That's Mr. Emmett's machine,' said one boy sharply. "'He told me to keep an eye on it.' "'I must borrow it, Sonny,' I said. "'Mr. Emmett's my very good friend, and won't object.' From the place where we stood, I overlooked the back of the battlefield, and could see an anxious congress of officers. I could see others, too, whose appearance I did not like. They had not been there when I operated on the megaphone. They must have come downhill from the aerodrome, and in all likelihood were the pursuers I had avoided. The exhilaration which I had won in the air, and which had carried me into the tomfoolery of the past half-hour, was ebbing. I had the hunted feeling once more, and grew middle-aged and cautious. I had a baddish record for the day, what with getting Archie into a scrape, and busting up an official cinema show, neither consistent with the duties of a brigadier-general. Besides, I had still to get to London. I had not gone two hundred yards down the road when a boy scout, peddling furiously, came up abreast me. "'Colonel Edgeworth wants to see you,' he panted. "'You're to come back at once.' "'Tell him I can't wait now,' I said. "'I'll pay my respects to him in an hour.' "'He said you were to come at once,' said the faithful messenger. "'He's in an awful temper with you, and he's got bobbies with him.' I put on pace and left the boy behind. I reckoned I had the better part of two miles' start, and could beat anything except petrol. But my enemies were bound to have cars, so I had better get off the road as soon as possible. I coasted down a long hill to a bridge which spanned a small, discoloured stream that flowed in a wooded glen. There was nobody for the moment on the hill behind me, so I slipped into the covert, 
shoved the bicycle under the bridge, and hid Archie's aquascutum in a bramble thicket. I was now in my own disreputable tweeds, and I hoped that the shedding of my most conspicuous garment would puzzle my pursuers if they should catch up with me. But this, I was determined, they should not do. I made good going down that stream, and out into a lane which led from the downs to the market-gardens round the city. I thanked heaven I had got rid of the aquascutum, for the August afternoon was warm, and my pace was not leisurely. When I was in secluded ground I ran, and when any one was in sight I walked smartly. As I went, I reflected that Bradfield would see the end of my adventures. The police knew that I was there, and would watch the stations and hunt me down if I lingered in the place. I knew no one out there, and had no chance of getting an effective disguise. Indeed, I very soon began to wonder if I should get even as far as the streets. For at the moment when I had got a lift on the back of a fishmonger's cart, and was screened by its flapping canvas, two figures passed by on motor-bicycles, and one of them was the inquisitive Boy Scout. The main road from the aerodrome was probably now being patrolled by motor-cars. It looked as if there would be a degrading arrest in one of the suburbs. The fish-cart, helped by half a crown to the driver, took me past the outlying small villadom, between long lines of workmen's houses, to narrow cobbled lanes and the purlieus of great factories. As soon as I saw the streets well crowded, I got out and walked. In my old clothes I must have appeared like some second-class bookie or seedy horse-coper. The only respectable thing I had about me was my gold watch. I looked at the time, and found it half-past five. I wanted food, and was casting about for an eating-house, when I heard the purr of a motorcycle, and across the road saw the intelligent boy-scout. He saw me, too, and put on the brake with a sharpness which caused him to skid, and all but come to grief under the wheels of a wool-wagon. That gave me time to efface myself by darting up a side-street. I had an unpleasant sense that I was about to be trapped, for in a place I knew nothing of I had not a chance to use my wits. I remember trying feverishly to think, and I suppose that my preoccupation made me careless. I was now in a veritable slum, and when I put my hand to my vest-pocket I found that my watch had gone. That put the top stone on my depression. The reaction from the wild burn-out of the forenoon had left me very cold about the feet. I was getting into the underworld again, and there was no chance of a second Archie Roylance turning up to rescue me. I remember yet the sour smell of the factories, and the mist of smoke in the evening air. It is a smell I have never met since, without a sort of dulling of spirit. Presently I came out into a market-place. Whistles were blowing, and there was a great hurrying of people back from the mills. The crowd gave me a momentary sense of security, and I was just about to inquire my way to the railway station, when someone jostled my arm. A rough-looking fellow in mechanics' clothes was beside me. "'Mate,' he whispered, "'I got some of yours here.' And to my amazement he slipped my watch into my hand. "'It was took by mistake. We're friends of yours. You're right enough if you do what I tell you. There's a peeler over there got his eye on you. Follow me, and I'll get you off.' I didn't much like the man's looks, but I had no choice, and anyhow he had given me back my watch. He sidled into an alley between tall houses, and I sidled after him. Then he took to his heels, and led me a twisting course through smelly courts into a tan-yard, and then by a narrow lane to the back quarters of a factory. 
Twice we doubled back, and once we climbed a wall and followed the bank of a blue-black stream with a filthy scum on it. Then we got into a very mean quarter of the town, and emerged in a dingy garden strewn with tin cans and broken flower-pots. By a back door we entered one of the cottages, and my guide very carefully locked it behind him. He lit the gas and drew the blinds in a small parlour, and looked at me long and quizzically. He spoke now in an educated voice. "'I ask no questions,' he said, "'but it's my business to put my services at your disposal. You carry the passport.' I stared at him, and he pulled out his watch, and showed a white and purple cross inside the lid. "'I don't defend all the people we employ,' he said, grinning. "'Men's morals are not always as good as their patriotism. One of them pinched your watch, and when he saw what was inside it, he reported to me. We soon picked up your trail, and observed you were in a bit of trouble. As I say, I ask no questions. What can we do for you?' "'I want to get to London without any questions asked. They're looking for me in my present rig, so I've got to change it.' "'That's easy enough,' he said. "'Make yourself comfortable for a little, and I'll fix you up. The night train goes at eleven-thirty. You'll find cigars in the cupboard and there's this week's critic on the table. It's got a good article on Conrad, if you care for such things." I helped myself to a cigar, and spent a profitable half-hour reading about the vices of the British government. Then my host returned and bade me ascend to his bedroom. "'You're Private Henry Tompkins of the Twelfth Gloucesters, and you'll find your clothes ready for you. I'll send on your present togs if you give me an address.' I did as I was bid and presently emerged in the uniform of a British private, complete down to the shapeless boots and the dropsical puttees. Then my friend took me in hand and finished the transformation. He started on my hair with scissors, and arranged a lock which, when well oiled, curled over my forehead. My hands were hard and rough, and only needed some grubbiness and hacking about the nails to pass muster. With my cap on the side of my head, a pack on my back, a service rifle in my hands, and my pockets bursting with penny picture-papers, I was the very model of the British soldier returning from leave. I had also a packet of woodbine cigarettes, and a hunch of bread and cheese for the journey. And I had a railway warrant made out in my name for London. Then my friend gave me supper, bread and cold meat, and a bottle of bass which I wolfed savagely, for I had had nothing since breakfast. He was a curious fellow, as discreet as a tombstone, very ready to speak about general subjects, but never once coming near the intimate business which had linked him and me, and heaven knows how many others, by means of a little purple and white cross in a watch-case. I remember we talked about the topics that used to be popular at Biggleswick, the big political things that begin with capital letters. He took Amos's view of the soundness of the British working man, but he said something which made me think. He was convinced that there was a tremendous lot of German spy-work about, and that most of the practitioners were innocent. The ordinary Briton doesn't run to treason, but he's not very bright. A clever man in that kind of game can make better use of a fool than a rogue. As he saw me off, he gave me a piece of advice. Get out of these clothes as soon as you reach London. Private Tompkins will frank you out of Bradfield, but it mightn't be a healthy alias in the metropolis. At eleven-thirty I was safe in the train, talking the jargon of the returning soldier, with half a dozen of my own type in a smoky, third-class carriage. I had been lucky in my escape, 
for at the station entrance and on the platform I had noticed several men with the unmistakable look of plain-clothed police. Also, though this may have been my fancy, I thought I caught in the crowd a glimpse of the bagman who had called himself Linkletter. End of chapter 9